Hello and welcome or welcome back to The Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast all about big picture conversations, the podcast where I talk to influential thinkers and community leaders, teachers and people truly working to make this world a better place. And today's guest is no different. In fact, he's all of those things I just mentioned and a genuinely wonderful human being. But what is different about today's episode is its format. You see, usually I have long-form, intimate conversations with people, usually in their home, and I really like that. Something I love about this podcast medium is that it's long-form, it's grassroots, it's intimate, which for me is completely different to our 24-hour media, social media, clickbait society. But today's episode was a live interview. Yes, this was the first episode in a five-part series of live workshops as part of the RenewFest and Resilient Byron Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow. This is where community forums are being held in five different villages around the Byron Shire, bringing locals together to talk about and workshop what resilience could and should look like and to build community networks and plans. It's really exciting to be part of these workshops and let me just say they're not just fluffy conversations where people go home feeling warm and fuzzy. These are serious, in-depth, big thinking forums and I have been blown away by the interaction and effort from the participants. All of these forums have been booked out very quickly and people are getting absolutely stuck into these issues which for me just speaks volumes of our collective awareness and desire for wanting to connect and improve our communities. So like I said, this is a new format for me. And given that it's the first in a five-part live recorded series, I'm actually going to start by sharing the live introduction from the day. So the forum is emceed by a man called Jean Renouf, who is a former international aid worker and has worked in developing countries all over the world, including in disaster relief and war-torn environments. He's now a lecturer in the areas of climate change and community security at Southern Cross University, and he's also the co-founder and chair of Resilient Byron, which is a not-for-profit that builds capacity and social infrastructure in the Byron Shire region. If you're interested in this kind of community organisation, by the way, whether or not you live in the Byron Shire, I highly recommend you have a look at the Resilient Byron model online on the website and get a deeper sense of, of their work. So Jean starts by introducing the purpose of the workshop and gives a flavour of Resilient Byron's work. He then introduces me as the interviewer for the speaker for the day, who was supposed to be local Arakwal custodian Delta K. Now, unfortunately, Delta got caught up in the last minute in Victorian coronavirus restrictions and couldn't be with us, which was actually kind of symbolic because the purpose of the whole forum was to discuss resilience and adapting to change. But what it meant was that Jean himself stepped in as the main speaker for this one, and his stories are incredible, particularly his work in disaster areas. Not only do they put our first world problems into a bit of perspective, but they also have so many learnings and parallels that we can draw and compare to, especially to what we're going through collectively right now, you know, following droughts and bushfires and pandemic and economic uncertainty. So 
for the four future live workshops, which will have different speakers, by the way, which I'll release fortnightly in between my normal long form episodes. For those future ones, I'll, I'll jump straight into the interviews. But for this one, I really wanted to share this introduction from Jean to help paint the picture of the importance of community assembly like this and to give you a flavor and help you feel like you were somewhat of a participant. So with that, I hope you enjoy the very first Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow. This one was live from Byron Bay with my conversation with Dr. Jean Renouf. introduce Jean Renouf who is the chair of Resilient Byron and he is also a family man with two little boys in Mullum and a wife (laughs) and he is a lecturer at Southern Cross University and a local firefighter in Mullumbimby and he's spent a number of years working overseas in um, emergency relief in war, war zones in places like Afghanistan and he'll tell you more about that soon as well with um, James and yeah I hand it to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. We are very happy to see you here. It's really um, an honor and a pleasure to have you here. So from the bottom of our heart, thank you. This is a journey that we have to take together and seeing you making these steps with us is so heartwarming. So a deep, deep thank you. Often the way we, not often, all the times, the way we start our meetings at Resident Barn or our encounters um, through grounding ourselves. So depending who's leading the meeting that day or that moment, the the grounding will differ. The way I like doing it is for all of us to take, to close our eyes and take five deep breaths together. So you don't have to do it if you don't feel like it, that's perfectly fine. But if you'd like, please join me in closing your eyes and taking five deep breaths together. Thank you very much. So I'm not going to speak much about Resident Barn right now. We're going to spend a bit more time a bit later talking about it. But what I would like to say is just acknowledge the year that we have gone through. I think this, just what we collectively have lived together for 12 months, or maybe a bit more considering the bushfire crisis, Black Summer started a few months before that, is huge. If you are tired, if you feel down, if you feel anxious, if you feel uncertain about where we're heading, that's perfectly normal. You're normal humans reacting to extraordinary events, unprecedented events, something that we are not used to deal with and something that our society does not help us deal with. So it's up to us to find the answer and how do I make sense of this? We went through the bushfire crisis. We went to the floods. We went to the COVID-19 crisis. In this region, we went to the economic crisis that hit us quite hardly. And for anyone who's paying a rent at the moment, you know how insecure you are because of the increase of rent, because of, of rent, because of loss of jobs. We are in a difficult position. And it's important to kind of ground ourselves in this reality, not pretend it's not happening, it's just another year. It's not. 
We are living unprecedented times, something which I call the great unraveling. It has started, and this will be our story for the rest of our life. If we are, believed, if we are to believe the climate science, what climate scientists are telling us is source of concern. So with this in mind, what do we do? Do we just accept it and leave, it in, dis leave in despair? Some may fall into this trap. We have decided for our children, for our grandchildren, to try to do something, what we can at our level, at our community level. So of course, we, we work with every layers of government. Of course, we, we work with every existing organization. We, we implement partnerships as much as we do. But we want to do stuff, us as residents of the Bayernshire and the Northern Rivers, because we can empower ourselves to be active despite it all, to connect with each other, within ourselves, with the environment, to change the way we live. And that's what we aim to do at Resilient Bayern and you know, in the Bayernshire and Northern Rivers. We aim to connect. How many of us feel disconnected every day because we're under pressure of this and that? So we aim to connect to ourselves, to our families, to our friends, to our communities, to our colleagues, to strangers. And then we aim to prepare. We aim to build our resilience. We know that we will be hit by more disasters. Those of you that have gone through the floods three years ago know how high the water can go. It will go higher. Those who, know, who have faced the flames and the bushfires know how close we were from further disaster. It will come back. So we need to prepare for these. But then we don't want to live in fear. So we also, in the process, want to transform our society with the extinction crisis, with the social crisis, the lack of democracy and the crisis in governance, we cannot continue the way we are. Everything is telling us we are, we've reached a red light. We need to change the way we live. As society, we need to transform. And it's up to us. It's our generation, our opportunity to change the way we live. If we want to give our children and grandchildren a future that they deserve, it's on us to make those changes. So this is what we, pr what we propose, uh, regeneration. We need to think differently how we live together. So with this in mind, I invite you today, this afternoon, to re-drop into these realities. We don't want this to be just a nice place where we had a good chat and you know, interesting stuff came up. We'd like this to be a place of action. We'd like to know what it means to you, what you're going to be taking away back home tonight and tomorrow and after tomorrow. What you're going to be thinking of, perhaps some actions are going to be taken on your own, at your home, with your family, with your friends, in your neighborhood, in your community. Perhaps together you're going to meet today and say, oh, you, I like you, Adi, can I help you perhaps implementing this? We want this to be action-focused. How can we together, living in this Bayernshire, living, sharing this place, what can we do to transform the region? Because we must. So with this in mind, please engage. We would like to hear from you and get you drop in with us in moving forward. Um, so what are we going to do this afternoon? Soon we're going to be starting the, um, the interview. So James Perrin here is going to be interviewing me in the absence of Delta. And I mean, this is really unfortunate and we feel as you know, sad as you do probably. So really, I apologize for this. I hope I can make up a little bit for it, although I definitely don't have her wisdom. Um, James, uh, maybe I can introduce you now. Uh, James, maybe you know him because uh, he is the sustainability manager at Stoneinwood. He is also a dotting father. He's a nature lover. He likes hiking. He likes gardening. He is very big in sustainability. 
Hello everybody, welcome. How nice to be able to gather as a community, right? We've had, I mean, we've been fairly lucky in this region, but um, we still had lockdown and we've all got other friends and family members that have been impacted by it. So to be able to gather and assemble as community, I think we're all realizing how special and important that is. So how wonderful that we can do that today. I'd like to introduce John to anyone who's not familiar. No. <laughs> You're not Delta. No. <laughs> um, but as, as uh, Ella touched on in her interview, what, a, what a, an interesting, what, what a symbolic uh, paradox, really, of why we gather here today. We're here to talk about resilient, regenerative communities. Uh, we're here to talk about adapting to change and an increased rate of change that we'll all be facing in our world and of course last minute we've got curveballs thrown at us pulling together an event it's actually quite a perfect symbolism isn't it um and and facing increased uncertainty you know i think we as as society are so used to being in control and being certain of everything or trying to control everything whereas the world is becoming more and more uncertain so it's these kind of topics that I think are really important for us to connect and explore. So I, I really commend Jean and, and Ella and the Resilient Byron and RenewFest team for pulling it all together. So as Jean touched on, um, I, so I, yes, I, I've been living and working in the region for some time and um, I've got a background and I work in sustainability and community um, from a business point of view, but I also um, have been inspired in the last nine or so months to start branching out, and I started a podcast, which I think is probably possibly the most white privileged thing I've ever said. <laughs> I decided to launch a podcast, uh, but it really is uh, inspired about going, exploring big picture, philosophical kind of deep beliefs around nature and humanity. And it's I drew the inspiration from an experience or a paradigm shift that astronauts have, which is called the overview effect. So, if anyone's unfamiliar with what that is. Um, when astronauts first go up into space, and, and I have this image in my mind of an astronaut being very analytical, very rational, very you know, cold, hard, factual, go up into space, they look back on Earth for the first time from space and they see our beautiful world and our beautiful Earth just hanging in the void and they see how fragile and special it is and they also see how connected and part of part of this beautiful world we all are as beings there are no boundaries on a map and they describe this overwhelming sense of emotion and this sense of connectedness to all living beings and many of them a lot of them come back permanently changed they and they talk some of them become really spiritual and religious some become really connected to their communities so it manifests in different ways but i really draw inspiration from from hearing um, that paradigm shift and so that's kind of the premise of my podcast and the show and what I'm trying to explore with guests and I'm really happy to explore that with Jean today. So Jean, on that note, uh, a question that I always like to start with is 
thinking about the overview effect and knowing that you haven't gone into space yourself, but you have had some incredible experiences in your life, have you had a moment or a period of time or an experience where you've had a similar paradigm shift that's kind of changed your perspective on the world and, and really altered the way that you interact with it? That's a big question. Big question. I would say multiple ones, probably. Um, and they're all identical in the sense that it was a moment where I was in O, in front of the immensity of nature. And to give an example of one of these moments, like um, I was in Guatemala, I was studying in Mexico and then traveled to Guatemala. And at some point I went to visit the ruins of Tikal, which is the ruins of an ancient Maya civilization. And I was at the top of one of those pyramids, which probably you have seen pictures of if you haven't visited them yourselves. And um, I turned around and I looked beyond the pyramid. That's the highest pyramid in the place. And there were trees, 360 degrees trees till the horizon. And I never met that before. I never had this impression of being surrounded by forest completely. Because you drove in to Tikal, you know, for, for, a, for memory, I think it was seven hours um, from Flores to Tikal in the forest. And you don't have this perspective. But once you're above, I was just blown away by the sheer size of it all. So these, this is one of the moments where I was kind of humbled, you know, by planet Earth. Do you know, I've, I've asked quite a few people this question and, um, and I've even had a similar question posed to me, which is when did you first become an environmentalist or what, what first made you care about sustainability and environment? So it's quite similar. Um, and unanimously, the, the responses and the stories tend to be exactly that, stories from when people have felt connected. Mm. And either through beauty and awe like those astronauts describe, or through and or through loss and experience or seeing devastation and loss, and quite often both. And um, I think that's interesting because it tends to not be... We, we can't tend to be motivated by, a lot of the time, the facts mm. or the, the rationally... Um, rational motivations for these things. It's the connection that we, that we have. It's that, that kind of emotional and... Um, sense of connection and 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 love really for our world or the beings that inhabit it and I guess to you, you talked about that beautiful experience of connection but have you also experienced or seen through your background and knowing a bit about your background the flip side which is those moments of devastation and destruction and loss that have also overwhelmed you yeah I guess um, so I have maybe to give a bit of background for those who don't know I used to work as an international aid worker previous to my career as an academic and so I spent years of my life working in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Congo and Central African Republic Haiti, Yemen and more um, and yes I have seen like <laughs> something that usually makes people laugh <laughs> is in its true story the first time i was shot at was literally an hour after i landed in baghdad in 2003 you know when there's still you may remember the images of the looting and everything literally an hour later i was like okay welcome you know this is the place um but i think that the most striking moment for me was in uganda so a country in east africa um i was driving from congo I was working to kenya and it was a car accident 
so not war related, but a car accident. And um, the car, two car crushed one in, one in front of each other. Um, it happened literally a minute before I arrived, we stopped. And I naturally went in and started giving uh, first aid. There were a number of dead people and number of people injured. And I felt quite overwhelmed by the number of people that needed help. Um, and then at some point I saw some um, people coming in the car, I was in the back helping someone. And I see someone opening the door on the other side and coming. And I'm thinking, oh, finally someone's gonna come and help me and check on them. No, they were actually looting them. They were stealing their valuables while they, they were injured. And that had such a profound effect mm -hmm. on me, such a shock in terms of this is actually happening. And um, I felt that I had to stay till the incident was resolved, rightly or wrongly. And at some point, someone asked me, because he was seeing me like um, so involved in trying to help these people, and said, are they your friends or your family? Do you know them? I said, no. And the question was, why do you help them? Mm. And that haunted me. These images, these moments haunted me for years. And um, now I've made peace with it. But I think it's because I understand culturally like when you live and you grow in different, in different country, when the relationship that you have with others, with survival, with the government, is so radically different than we white privilege can experience, you just think differently. So the environment certainly shapes us and the culture shapes us. So this is one example among several where I was struck by you know, the other extreme, not awe and beauty, but horror and, mm -hmm. and sheer darkness of our humanity. And, and that was when you were already in doing aid work. So what, just to take a little bit of a step back, what got you into that line of work? And can you just elaborate a little bit more on um, s s what, what sort of work you were doing in these countries? Yes. Um, <laughs> what were you mean? I think it's a mix of um, young male hormones wanting mm. to go and seek action and adventure, you know, frankly. Um, bit of immaturity, a lot of immaturity, I think, in this font. Um, wanting to prove something to myself, to society, uh, to do the right thing. And also, at the same time, a genuine um, feeling, uh, drive, I would say, that it, I, like, adventure for adventure is shallow. So I wanted to live a life of adventure, but that meant something that was meaningful in the outcome or in the way we were doing. So to me, it was a nice combination. And I did that for 15 years or so till I became, or I was about to become a parent when I stopped. Um, so what I was doing really varied depending on countries where I was working. Sometimes I was joined, like in Haiti, for instance, I went there just a few weeks after the 2010 earthquake, which you may remember. Mm -hmm. And I was then managing the security of um, non-for-profit, a large English non-for-profit. And when I say managing security, I'm, I don't have a military background. I don't have a police background. I'm not a big muscly guy. That's not what we mean in the aid sector by managing security. Managing security when you are an aid worker means how do you navigate the real dangers of this environment in a way which remains peaceful. So aid workers are directly targeted. They are kidnapped, they are killed, they are maimed, they are raped, all of the above. So we have to protect ourselves, but we are not the police, we are not the army, and we don't want to be. So collectively, and that was also part of my, my doctoral research, my PhD was how can we maintain our values, our integrity of doing the right thing, but protecting ourselves? 
And we came up collectively with a number of colleagues uh, with a framework which we've implemented where we can operate in this very dangerous environment in being protected but without having weapons, without having you know, helmets or, or life jackets. Um, so in a way, it's essentially about understanding the environment where you are, meeting everyone, including the bad guys, um, explaining who you are, connecting with them, and I have, I mean, very strange stories actually uh, about like meeting the, the, the guys, actually some of whom were then arrested and sent to The Hague, the criminal court, um, but still having this connection at a human level, which is quite fascinating. Um, so negotiating access to the populations in need with those guys who effectively control the territory. So this is what managing security is. And was in Haiti, I, I went there for a few weeks to because Haiti has, has a large criminal issue and there are gangs operating, quite solidly organized gangs, very violent. So we had to go and talk to them, meet them, introduce ourselves, explain them what we're doing, what, what is intention, and agree on how we're going to do this and understand what do they want. Without, we don't give any money, we don't buy anything, so there's no corruption involved, but what do they want from this relationship? So often it will give them legitimacy and credibility because suddenly they are seen as the good guys among the population that they control. So there's still a give and take here. Um, but that's what I did, for instance. Another case, I, I worked in Iraq for a year and a half, and then I was managing projects where, at the time, we were um, uh, supporting the health system. So we were tr working in 100 of different hospitals, renovating the, the, the hospitals from the embargo prior to the war and then the destruction of, during and after the war. Um, providing emergency help. So like um, when cities like Fallujah or Najaf, which are some names that you might have heard, were bunkered down, surrounded by US Marines and the insurgents inside, we were able to come in, still negotiate with everyone, access um, and, and distribute the, the, the goods, the drugs, the medical equipment to the medical staff. Would get them out, train them, uh, improve their, their skills, um, so that lasted for a year and a half. When I was working in North Korea, so probably the safest country I've, I've lived in my whole life, <laughs> um, I was also renovating hospital, but in a completely different setting. In North Korea, um, it gets really cold in winter. I mean, at some point it was like minus 25 degrees. And for the first time in my life, I don't know if you've experienced that in life, but my eyeballs were cold. <laughs> I didn't know that could happen, but it's true. <laughs> And the reality is that the, the buildings and the hospitals they don't have, did not have any heatings inside. So I, I took the, the, the temperature in the patient's room and it was minus 10 degrees inside the building. Wow. So our, our role was to what we call winterize, so to basically insulate a number of you know, uh, rooms and operating theaters um, as part of work. So really diverse depending on, on where I was working. I'm interested in something that you said just before. You said um, essentially getting to know and connect with the, even the bad guys. And I think in that, that's a really interesting because you're exactly right in that term. We frame up the good guys and the bad guys. And quite often we point the finger at the people causing harm. But what you were touching on is actually getting to know them, getting to know what is motivating them, what they want, and I guess in a way seeing them as part of, as a symptom, mm. right? In a work, if you think from a systems point of view, in a 
in a, a healthy functioning society and system, they wouldn't be bad guys. Right? Uh, so, so what are the, and then I guess reflecting on that and your work in aid, what are the, what are the, the, the themes or the, the parts of the system that you have seen that need to happen for effective change to occur rather than just, you know, band-aid solutions? Mm. What is it that we need to do in, whether it's international aid or in any kind of crisis, what are the, the um, similarities? Great question. Um, it's a complex question to answer because I think there are many facets to it, but I would say um, it's a mix of really understanding the environment, really listening to the people, deep listening to what people say, what their, their reality is, um, and be guided by that always. Um, it's also about committing it's a commitment. You don't help someone. I mean, of course, every, all of us, you know, we help people one-off and that's it and we move on. But we're, if we're talking about change, transformational change, it takes time. It's deep. It's together. So a lot of sitting, a lot of talking, a lot of building trust. Um, when things go wrong, we explain, we're transparent, we repair together. Um, it takes resources. So time is one, but money is another. Mm -hmm. So money to implement projects. Like if you say someone you're gonna help them, uh, but their priority is to put food on the table, they don't necessarily want to spend three hours in a meeting with you. So you have to help them out. Mm. So um, thinking if I missed anything, I think these are really the big ones. Yeah, commitment, understanding, and resources. Mm. Yeah. And do you think just before we move on from the, your background and the topic of international aid, but I'm interested in your time and even after, uh, after working in those countries and now being, a, I guess, an observer and a researcher in that space, do you feel like improvements have been made? Do you feel like that we're getting, things are getting better or are they actually going the other way? Wow, it's so tricky. I think um, I worked in Congo at some point, 2003, 2004, and there were, there's the middle of the war, there were massacres happening, a huge amount of insecurity. Um, and I left actually because I was starting my PhD in London. Um, but I returned in 2015, so around 10, 10, 12 years later. And I was just blown away by what I thought was an, an unsolvable case. But things have changed. All the refugee camps I had worked in, all but one had closed. People had returned to their homes. There was even one kilometer long paved road. You know, it used to be just dirt road. That was this one kilometer of paved road, which is just a sign of even in the deep side of jungle, you know, the big machinery are able to reach now. Mm -hmm. um, so there are changes even in those unsolved, like seemingly wicked problems, you know, unsolvable issues. But it does take time. I mean, mm -hmm. what's happening in the Middle East, you know, what's happening in Yemen? Um, and the question about the big guy or the comment you made about the bad guy. So before, uh, is there is something that, um, I had to ask myself, like at some point I was working in Palestine in the occupied territory in, in the Gaza Strip, which is um, essentially like uh, 40 kilometers long and 5 to 12 kilometers wide. So it's really, really small. Yeah, it's, it's like smaller than the Gold Coast. And there are, uh, from memory, I think 1.3 million people living there. Well, wow. don't quote me on this, in disastrous conditions. And I had this realization then 
geez, those guys, they are connected. They have mobile phones. They have internet. You know, they watch Hollywood movies. You know, the young guys, they want to, ha to you know, have fun. You know, they, they want to live their life. They don't want to be stuck in an open-air jail. So if I, had, if I was born in there, would I become a terrorist? Would I try by any means necessary, if necessary, to get myself out of it? I can, cannot honestly say uh, I, I wouldn't. I just don't know. Mm. It's too big of a question to really be able to articulate it. Now I know from, from a lifelong uh, experience that um, peace is the way. But back in my 20s, I'm not sure I would have chosen that way. Um, so bad guys being relative. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, your, your examples are such an extreme example right i mean i can only i can't even begin to imagine what that what that looks like and what those those parts of the world are like um but i guess if we were to take what you're saying and try to apply it to a kind of here and now in our modern world there's a lot of the world that wants us to shift blame whether it's i don't know political figures whether it's big corporates wh whoever it is there's a lot of point there's a lot of pointer thinking mm. uh, finger point Point of thinking, <laughs> finger pointing, um, and there's a lot of uh, wanting to create blame, and we see it. If anyone's ever looked at any comment on any form of social media, there's a lot of blame and a lot of um, finger pointing. So, I guess, how would you apply that thinking to kind of the here and now and what we're trying to create here? Because we live in this society that wants wants to create mm. a bad person, wants to find the culprit and stamp it out mm. but uh, from what i hear from you it's a th there's more of an internal change that has to happen first is that right oh yes yeah, certainly I, I i do think if we can trans if we want to transform our societies we have to transform ourselves and it's you know we are transforming in turn by the environment so it's a kind of win-win but as a lecturer in politics and international relations I really understand my students' frustrations when they look at the you know, federal government policies or lack thereof in terms of climate action, for instance. I mean, this is a massive existential threat that is hanging our, all of our sh uh, head. And it's bewildering why there's no tangible action being done. You know, they are supposed to be leaders, and it is extraordinarily frustrating. I think it would be very easy to blame, and if things went wrong, you know, resort to violence, to, re to, to kind of act upon, to vent out, to revenge, etc. But what I came to realize is we can always blame someone. And look at us, all of us here, even though probably a lot of us are struggling here for different reasons, we are still better off than 90% of the world's population. So if we, if we start the blame game, you know, mm. what about all the 90% of the population looking behind us, blaming us as, you know, uh, well-off countries who are not reducing our emissions well we should you know so i say yes definitely social justice absolutely environmental justice yes but no blame game there's this is shooting yourself in the foot so i think as i said before peace is absolutely the way we have to connect even with the buddies we have to listen to their views we have to understand why they have these ideas we don't have to, to agree with them we don't have to do what they say we can, and this is what we propose, is build another world without having to ask anyone's permission. Yeah, and I think when you say uh, we've got leaders or we've got people that are taking inaction or even sometimes sugarcoating the issues that we face, I mean, it's really easy to reflect on 
I guess, recent social movements and think we're making progress. And you mm. think things like Me Too and the climate strikes and Black Lives Matter and a few years ago, uh, same-sex marriage. And there, there are all these great examples of positive change. Um, but I think we must be careful not to look at those and hang a hat on them and go, look, look, we're on... We, the world has come to this collective consciousness and we're all changing. We've actually, I think, got to go in and, and really feel that that despair and that desperation and the grief because you don't have to look much further back, I mean, a, a fraction in time in human history to see how horrific some of the events have been that we've created. I mean, it was only, what, 200 years ago that none of this was here, mm-hmm. right? And And if Delta were here, mm-hmm. she could talk deeply on that but none of not, not only none of the buildings but none of the trees we've got none of the original mm. landscape is here it's all it's all new it was only what about a hundred years ago that um women were allowed to vote in this country and other countries around the world it was only uh, i think about 80 years ago that the holocaust happened mm. you know Anne frank would still be would, would be in her 90s if she were alive today mm. i think martin luther king would as well which is unbelievable to think those two could actually potentially still be alive today, so the civil rights movement. So these things are horrific events, or you know, born out of horrific events that are only a fraction in time in human history. So I think for real change, we can't just sugarcoat it and go, look, we've done a few things. I think we actually have to really acknowledge that deeper, mm-hmm. those deeper issues. And then... I guess to think of our current point in time, I'm, I'm actually interested in your perspective on this. When a breakdown occurs, like we've had the bushfires and the pandemic and cl- we're facing climate change, we're facing all these things. When a breakdown occurs, there is actually a moment to open up to change and renewal, right? So have you seen moments in, maybe it's been a, a war zone or an economic collapse or a societal collapse where a breakdown occurs and that offers a new opportunity and do you think that this is a pivotal time in the world now in that sort of space you ask really big <laughs> questions <laughs> um, yes I think uh, you're absolutely correct I mean um, change leads to change uh, now the question is in which direction we are pushing this change and you know some are proposing gas-led recovery from the current crisis others propose a regenerating our societies and our environment um, so I think the, 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 I don't necessarily believe in the linearity of progress and if we look at back history there's plenty of things that have gone better and plenty of things that have gone worse um, whether you look at you know, social rights on one hand, but environmental destruction on the other. So it's always like, you know, um, what we win on some aspect, we lose on others. Mm. Um, so it comes back to your other question about how do we affect change, it's commitment. It's a really deep work and it's yeah. commitment. Um, I remember a case, like coming back specifically to your question, it was in Iraq. Um, it's, it's really anecdotal, but it, 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 it struck me when I saw this, actually. Um, at the fall of Saddam Hussein, so there were the, the US and UK and the coalition's soldiers, but they were actually quite, retreat, quite happy to retreat in their bases. So there was not much military presence in the streets, and uh, apart from checkpoints and stuff like that. Um, and there was anarchy in the sense, in the common sense, not in the political sense. There was anarchy in the sense that 
people did what they wanted to do. And you can imagine, like, let's imagine, like, in Byron Bay, you know, in Byron Shire, if suddenly really, like, after wealth of destruction, whatever that means, you know, earthquake or whatever, there were no more rules, but also no more electricity, no more water, no more food. How would we as a community live through this and react? We would most likely than not, because there'll be confusion, have these moments of, of anarchy. But what we realize in Iraq then and in other countries is that at some point, people are enough of it, have enough of it. They ne we need, as humans, we need some sort of routine. We need some sort of stability for us to thrive. We can't be always, you know, looking at each other as if we're going to kill each other. And I remember that particular moment where it, it, it's, it's a really simple example, but so profound in what it meant in terms of what our capacity to stand up and do the right thing. Uh, so we were driving somewhere in the in the small roads of Iraq, and at some point we like we went through. We were going to cross over a, a bridge, but the bridge had been destroyed by bombing. So we had to go down the river. There was very little water flowing, so all the cars were going up and down like this. And it was a massive, massive traffic jam. Like the Byron Bay traffic jam is like is, is a promenade, <laughs> you know, like it's really fun. Um, and the reason why the traffic jam is because there was no police, no army, no one in the streets of the towns and in the rural areas. And people literally drove wherever they wanted. Mm. And you could not walk in town because people drove on the sidewalks. I mean, people literally drove where they wanted. And that's exactly what happened there. Like, like you, you would look at it and say, how do you actually cross this river? You know, it's doable, but there's so many cars in between you know, here on the other side. And then I saw someone get out of his car and start, um, how do you say, managing traffic mm. on his own. And then a few people joined him and together they ensured some sort of flow. And I was standing, I was like looking at the big picture like from behind. And I was looking at this and I was just actually inspired and impressed, you know, wondering whether I'd do it and think that's really crazy too, you know, because they're taking huge risks. You know, what if someone gets angry at them, whatever. But that, that to me is a really good symbol of people staying up and doing the right thing, yeah. even in the middle of chaos. And that, you, you've, you've perfectly laid the foundation for a beautiful segue here. Ready? <laughs> I love that. No, that, that's a beautiful story because in that, what, I'm, what I kind of draw out of that is not that here's a traffic jam, we need a technological fix. You know, we don't need GPS to get through this. We don't need... Uh, high-tech smart traffic lights you know we don't we actually just need people to we need or community organizers mm. and we need people to kind of connect and agree on a set of how to be it's not necessarily what what we need to do it's more how we need to be and how do we organize and uh, move forward as a community and so with that in mind can you tell us a little bit more about Resilient Byron. Leave us on what what you're trying to do, what the ultimate goal of Resilient Byron is, and um, I guess prep us for this next part of the day, the okay, workshop. Sounds good, thank you. Um, I also would like to acknowledge you know, the different Resilient Byron leaders here in this room, and uh, I will want you to, you know, to still say what you do at Resilient Byron. It's not me, it's beyond me, you know, it's a collective effort. Um, but basically, the, the aim of Resident Barn is really to connect, build our resilience as communities, and build our regenerative capacities, transform the way we live. So it's a deep transformative agenda. And on the short term, we are um, helping 
ourselves to prepare for the next waves of disasters where we come from, you know, COVID, economic crisis, bushfire, we need to prepare for this. In the longer term, the longer term we need to change the way we live. We need to rethink our food system. We need to rethink the way we uh, interact with the water. We need to uh, rethink the way we live, what is considerable what is considered, you know, decent housing. Uh, we need to think of what we collectively are carrying on our shoulders in terms of mental health burden in these unprecedented times, and we need to help each other heal. Um, we need to rethink energy systems. Why are we reliant, you know, from, from a petrol or fossil fuel-based, you know, factory, you know, 500 kilometers from where we live, what happens, as nearly happened in bushfire, when the tower gets burned and there's no more electricity coming from the region? What do we do? You know? So we need to really re rethink how we live. You know? And Catherine Ingram, one of uh, advisors and ambassadors, you know, is, is often brings back to this question, what are the food truck stops? You know, for whatever reason, what if suddenly, you know, maybe for a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, suddenly the, all the food trucks that bring the food to the region, to the Woolies and the Coles and the Santos and other shops, you know, what do they stop coming? What do we do as a community? You know? So there's a lot of food growing. There's a lot of elements that we can do. There would be probably enough food to sustain us all, not in every aspect of our needs, but enough. But how do we access this? How do we share it equitably? How do we make sure that everybody feels safe knowing that they can access it when they need it? So these are the big questions that we need to look at, like frankly, honestly, mm. and respond to together. So I don't have the answers to this question, but I just know that we need to ask ourselves this question. So Resinbine here is a conduit for this. We are facilitating those conversations. We are facilitating the connection in between our communities. As you probably know, all of us here, we're struggling sometimes you know, with each other. We, we don't necessarily connect with the neighbor, with the strangers, which is fine. We don't have to be best friends. But at least we have to have this deep seeing of the others are human with the same needs and me. You know? mm -hmm. um, so that's what we're trying to do in a, in a philosophical perspective. Mm. From a very practical perspective, we, we, we focus on two aspects. The first one is bringing residents of the Barnshire and Northern Rivers together around support groups within the neighborhoods. So we, we support and encourage people to connect with neighbors, identify you know, the strengths and opportunities, the resources that they have in the neighborhood, how they can help each other, knowing each other, connecting. And on the other side, we help um, residents thinking, organizing, and implementing projects around different themes. So what we call the thematic groups. So food security, water security, housing security, um, energy security, health and well-being, and safety and emergency. So we have on, on, on these two aspects, the neighbor, neighborhood groups and the thematic groups, a number of leaders, some of whom are here in this room, who lead us in and tackling those big questions and seeing what we can do. And there's a number of projects that they themselves are going to describe to you that we have started. The roadshow here in partnership with the Renew Fest is one aspect of this, is raising awareness. We've decided, we wanted to do that last year, but COVID happened, so now we had to wait a bit. So we decided, okay, this year we really need to bring a community on board. What can mm. we do together? Mm. I love it. Organizing community, connecting community, so that we're not so disconnected when a fire happens and we don't even know who our neighbour is and who to call on um, and in a way symbolically metaphorically directing traffic 
Yeah, nicely. Yeah, yeah nicely put. So, Jean, thank you. Thank you for that discussion, learning a bit more about your history and sharing your experience, and also to you and the Resilient Byron team and the RenewFest team for pulling us all together today. So thank you very much. Thank you, James. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Thank you.